I was talking with a friend recently about a, a painful conversation that she'd had with her son. He's seven and was really upset about something, but he wouldn't say what it was. He just went straight to his bedroom, crawled into bed, and turned towards the wall. So she followed uh, into his room to find out what it was that was going on. And when he finally spoke with, with hurt in his voice, when he finally spoke, he said, God is a fantasy. God is a fantasy. This kind of stunned my friend, actually. I don't think that she was prepared for a theological statement. But she kept asking questions to see what had him so hurt. And at first, all he would say was that it happened at school and that he didn't want to talk about it, which raised her anxiety some more. Sweetheart, I can't help you unless you let me know what's going on. Finally, through tears, it, it all spilled out. Every day when he and his friend Robert played a game together, when his friend did well, his friend would call him a sucker. Now, at first, my friend thought she heard an F rather than an S at the start of the word. Uh, but did come to learn that the friend indeed was calling him a sucker. And there was some relief there. But the relief uh, disappeared when it became clear that this was slowly crushing her son's heart. Because when he was hurt, he did what any of us might do. He prayed to God. He prayed that God would stop his friend from making fun of him. But his friend didn't stop. It didn't change. And so after a couple of weeks of fervent prayer, this sweet seven-year-old came to the conclusion that God must be a fantasy. I wish that this were simply the experience of a seven-year-old. But clearly it's not. My guess is that if pressed, most of us can point to a time in our lives when we were desperate for the pain or the anguish or the suffering to just be over. And so we prayed to God, but we didn't receive the result we desired. And so what are we to do now? This is exactly where some of the disciples of the Christ were when this gospel that we just heard was being written in the first century. In the first generation after the resurrection, the followers of the way were waiting, longing for Jesus to be present again in a very particular way. And they did not see it. 
And it was enough so that Paul, for instance, in his letters, has to chide people that they need to get back to work, that they need to keep on living, that they can't just wait around for the second coming. And so it was a serious existential question. What do you do when it feels like your world is coming to an end? And it appears that God does not seem to care. This is the feeling that sets the stage for the parable of the persistent widow. In Luke's narrative, all of the focus at this point is on perseverance and courage. It's why Jesus is imploring his followers to keep praying and to not lose heart. To not lose heart. I can identify with that struggle. I really, I really can. It's... Uh, I feel it in the barely articulated yet felt anxiety that our actions and our inactions may not be sufficient to change the catastrophic course of collective life on this earth. And more and more, I, I hear this emerging fear around me that in this next political cycle, with possible impeachment and a highly contested presidential election that we may unleash the forces of civil strife. And our day-to-day -day context across California is of a boom cycle that has forced tens of thousands of people to survive by seeking shelter in doorways and alleyways in their cars, and under overpasses. And these challenges, sometimes they feel so monumental that often we wonder what we can do, what we can give that will possibly make a difference. So again, I get it. I understand why members of Luke's community needed to hear a teaching from the Christ about not losing heart. Because I need to hear it too. If some seven-year-olds can tell you how easy it is to lose heart in a world with injustice, then how is it that this widow, with not much money, with little status, and with almost no power, how is it that she can persist day after day after day? I want you to imagine for a moment a judge holding court in the first century. It's a, it's a large open space. There is a crowd of people 
and they are all pressing for their case to be heard. And as often is the case, those with money and status and power, well, they um, find their way at the front of the line and often with a thumb on the scale tipping in their favor. And yet, day after day after day, from the edges of the crowd, this voice rings out, berating the judge. Give me justice. The Greek here, it, um, the literal Greek, is like uh, beating someone black and blue, giving someone a black eye. This is what this widow was doing with this judge, demanding justice. How does she do it? I believe that at the end of the day, she knows. At a deep level, she knows that she is in the right. And she knows what God has done in the past, and she puts her trust in what God will do next. And it's the kind of faith-filled persistence that is necessary to brave this life. It's the kind of trust that we need to build if we are seven or if we are 77. When my friend's son was suffering and God's response seemed to be silence, my friend told him that one of the things that we can trust is that God shows up in the people around us. The people who listen when you are hurting. The people who stand by you when you are afraid. The people who teach you when you are unsure. The people who pray with you when the words won't come. The people who feed you when you cannot feed yourself. The people filled with God who give you heart. Where in your life do you gain heart? Where do you gain heart? Where are the places you find hope? The places that ground you in truth? The places that support you in love? The places that challenge you to fully live? For me, it's this place. It's you. All Souls is one of the fundamental places in my life where I gain heart. And it's why I'm here. It's why I keep showing up. And it's why I give. It's why I tithe to this place. It's the teaching 
It's the service. It's the fellowship. It's the feasting. It's the worship. It's the silence. It's the music. It's the laughter. It's the tears. It's all the things. It's God in all the things. There are so many reasons why we lose heart in this world right now. And the reason why I persist, why I give, why I pray, why I trust, is so that in the struggle of it all, together in this place, you and I and anyone else who wants to can come close to God and do one of the most countercultural things in our world right now, which is to keep heart. <laughs>